you know, it's thinking on the thinking on the fly. It's doing stuff that actually I think chefs excel at. You know, we we adjust. That's why we got the job. This whole pandemic has brought to light the resiliency, I think, of the restaurant industry, the resiliency of the of the chef uh, to interpret the moment. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. The pandemic has changed our lives. The huge upheaval has made us rethink everything we do. In the food industry, it's destroyed businesses, careers and livelihoods, but it's also set many on a new path out of need or out of opportunity. But there are some that were already on a mission to change our perception and connection with food for the greater good. Dan Barber is the chef and co-owner of Blue Hill at Stone Barns and Blue Hill in Greenwich Village, New York. Dan, how are you? Great. Great to be here. Thanks for joining us. What's it like in New York at the moment? It's been a a hell of a year. What's what's it like there just now? Uh, Well, right now it is, um, we're we're at a moment uh, where you feel like you're on the precipice. and uh, you know the the which way does it go? It's 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 a very uh, unsettling moment. Uh, in some ways more so than even the height of the height of the pandemic, because you don't know which way the coin is gonna 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 fall here. So um, we know that that places very near to New York City are in it now with with a lot of cases rising. But New York City itself is doing okay. How long does that last for? We don't know. You've got a pretty important election in the next few days. How, how important is the outcome of that? Well, you would have a very good perspective on that um, from the world stage, from the American stage. I think this is a, this is a critical moment to, uh, to define how we uh, enter into um, the future uh, and are we going to do it uh, in a way that's going to confront some of the daunting challenges we have ahead of us or are we going to revert back to um, a kind of um, ethically corrupt uh, morally bankrupt uh, and 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 really backward view of of, um, how we conduct ourselves as you just sort of mentioned, we we sort of have a sort of window into what's going on in America during this time, and, it, and it's been um, frightening to watch in Australia. We've had an impact here, but not quite as extreme as in the US. Can you take us back to the early stages of and the impact that it had on on what you do with your restaurants? Well, in the middle of March, we had to close um, Blue Hill, uh, and and Blue Hill in New York City, two restaurants, Blue Hill at Stone Marts, which is just outside the city. And New York City is in the middle of the West Village and we overnight had to close. And like many restaurants, we were trying to figure out what to do. We ended up uh, creating a box program uh, that allowed our suppliers to continue supplying us uh, and getting paid for it. And to us, this was critical because we knew we wanted to reopen at some point and we didn't want these suppliers to disappear. And what we realized when we shut down was that many of these suppliers, these farmers were in real peril. And uh, that launched our 
to-go box program and eventually uh, allowed us to open for picnics outdoors. And now tonight I'm speaking to you in the midst of the first indoor service we have, um, which is, yeah, which is one table per room. We have several rooms. These are old stone barns where I'm talking to you from outside of New York City and Westchester. And there's several nooks and crannies for which we're putting tables that, that essentially are your own room for a, for a you know, multi-course feast. And you come as a family or a group of friends that know each other and have been around each other. And we give you a very limited service, um, but, but multi-course uh, tasting feast. After so long without the restaurant being open to welcome guests in, what's it, been, what's it felt like this last week preparing for this evening? Uh, you know, it's yet again, um, the feeling of reopening, you know, you know um, uh, changing our game, which is, which is, um, you know, it's thinking on the, thinking on the fly. It's doing stuff that, that actually I think chefs excel at, you know, we, we adjust. That's why we got the job. So uh, in some ways, you know, the, the, this whole pandemic has brought to light the resiliency, I think, of the restaurant industry, the resiliency of the, of the chef uh, to interpret the moment. Um, and a lot of restaurants and chefs are doing quite well at that. The experience that you give at Blue Hill is quite different to many restaurants. How different is the offering that you have right now compared to the experience people would have before the pandemic? Well, right now, I mean, we're serving, you know, four or five courses uh, with very minimal service. And I'm looking out uh, from my corner office in the in the kitchen out at uh, seven cooks. Uh, Pre-COVID, uh, March 14th, we had 46 cooks in the kitchen. Wow. So it's a very strange environment. Um but you know, it's it's. I gotta have to say that that. I mean, I, look, I it's like a roller coaster with me. I go up and down. But I, I, um, you know, I think you can do very good food uh, in a very different environment, and I never thought that was possible. Um, so I'm I'm learning uh, during this and 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 reevaluating uh, what's important, as we all are. You've uh, really had, had a mission to have a greater connection to the food we eat. Uh, wh when did that journey kind of start for you? I don't know that I have a I have a point demarcated for the beginning, but um, but I I grew up at I partly at Blue Hill Farm, which is a dairy farm in Western Massachusetts. Um, so I was inculcated into this idea of open space and pasture land and animals and sort of responsibility. Um, and I think that infused itself into my, you know, pursuit of cooking and, and how I cook. Um, I think that experience of being connected to agriculture was, was probably critical for my thinking. Um, so it set me on a, on a, on a type of, uh, of, of ethic that, um, you know, I have to say wasn't, wasn't um, brought on by an ethical, uh, you know, uh, compass, but much more by by the pursuit of flavor. Like I'm, I, I want to say that I'm first and foremost an environmentalist because we all want to say that. But but if you ask even the question of how do you get on this journey, the truth was I wanted to look like a better chef, and 
had a style of food that was that that gastronomically was just very simple. It was very simple plating and very straightforward. And because of that, I was relying very much on on the purity of flavor, and um, and you know, not hiding anything. Um, not because I didn't believe that there's great food that's complex and and multidimensional, and and therefore you know. Um, uh, can do things with combinations of ingredients that is really magical. It's not to say I don't believe in that. It's to say that that wasn't my style for some reason. And I'm a kind of, um, you know, naked uh, chef on the plate. Uh, there's never many, there's never more than two or three ingredients on the plate. And I don't cook with spices. I don't cook with heavy sauces. I'm, I'm, I'm really a minimalist. And so uh, it drove me to, uh, evaluate flavor in that context, which was which was shorn of some of the accoutrements and 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 flavor additives that are that are a part of great gastronomy, not just bad gastronomy, also part of great gastronomy. So that was just my style, and it led me to to zero in on on a, on a kind of farming uh, that produced those those jaw droppingly delicious flavors. There's a common theory in food that simplicity is one of the greatest things in food that a chef can master, but it's also one of the most difficult because there's no way to hide on the plate. I think that's probably the same of a, of a great podcast and a great, you know, great writing and great art in general is how do you master the, the, the simplicity because it's, it's so difficult. Um, so I don't want to pretend that I'm doing something that no other artistic pursuit, uh, doesn't doesn't try to do. Um, I'm just saying my style was um, was extreme, and so therefore the flavors of what I was working with really had to be um, uh, uh, superlative, and and that led me to understand well where do those kind of ingredients come from, and then I realized definitely they came from farmers that were local to me. Uh, not just because I was talking to them and getting to know them, but I started to get to know their farming practices and practices, and I I I recognized very quickly that those farmers that I really gravitated towards uh, were farmers that that were organic um, and that were practicing a, a great degree of diversity on their farm, uh, and and those are the farmers that I kept. Uh, ordering from and, and being a part of and growing up with really, which is why when COVID hit and all of a sudden I realized that, that yes, we had grown up together and that we were, you know, they were dependent on me as much as I was dependent on them. And that's why I started, that's why I kept going because I, I, in whatever way I could, because I felt if I ever wanted to come back without them, I wasn't, what was I? That was a, that was a, a, a reckoning moment. There's many chefs on the planet that try to um, get a stage or, or work and spend some time at, at Blue Hill because it's such a unique experience. What, what is it like for a chef to work on the farm and in the kitchen there? What, what, what happens on the day-to-day? Well, I think, you know, what the day-to-day is, is, was, uh, pre-COVID, was, you know, for, for 15 years, was as much an educational experience as it was a job. I mean, we spent hours... Uh, pre-service in the morning. I mean, it was very long hours, but in the morning it was really a, an hour and a half to two hour meeting regarding what products we were going to be working with that day. And we never had menus. Uh, 
Um, we never had a printed menu. So, so you know, we, we were doing on average about 35 courses per table, but without a menu. So we had a playlist of dishes that we would work for the night, but we often had ingredients that were only good for a couple of tables. Uh, we had, we test a lot of seeds. And so we had a lot of varieties that we just had a very, a handful of this and that. And so we would create menus for the table. And so that led to some very exciting uh, uh, evenings, but also some very tense filled evenings. And so well, it's very hard. It's a very hard kitchen to work in, but, but you get a lot out of it, I think, because you, you're understanding the connection between the flavors uh, and the products that you're working with and the kind of agriculture that it takes to produce that. And that's a very, you know, that's a kind of connection that, that, you know, becomes a compass point for a cook when they become a chef of their own restaurant. Uh, so we were breeding, hopefully the next generation of, of awareness that, um, that, you know, it's, it, we're very lucky to be in a place um, 20 miles from New York City that uh, is surrounded by 250 acres uh, of, of, of really productive farmland. Um, so, uh, you know, it's a blessing. And, um, and so, yes, we tried very hard to take advantage of that. The events of the last year or, or so has really put a focus on what we do with the environment and how we interact. Um, but you've been on this mission to have a greater connection for a long time. But do you think that'll change for you, given what's happened this year? Have you, have you changed um, during this time? Well, I don't know who, who hasn't changed. I mean, you, you, you rip Van Winkle and you've been asleep, then maybe you don't change. But, you know, I, I, I have, I have, yeah, I have, I've had some reckoning um personally um and and that's a lot about you know the high-end restaurant experience you know in, in a moment where right now in america one in four children are are food insecure which means most of them are going somewhat hungry for their next course or their next meal or or at least uh don't have the the assurance that the next meal will 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 be there one in four in the richest country in the world um, that happened overnight in COVID. so so do i personally see the um the necessity of of quickly reopening blue hill uh, and charging 400 dollars a person for for you know a menu um no i don't um i mean i always felt these issues i don't think i don't know any good chef who doesn't think about hunger and 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 nutrition, which is another, another, I think that might be the takeaway from COVID. Uh, in America, I don't know about Australia. I'm interested in Australia, what you feel the takeaway would be for me. And my, my sense is that we will have a connection and a consciousness about food that we never had. Because if for any other reason, then, then COVID has, has exposed the connection between between food and health. Uh, I, I was just seeing a statistic that said that COVID-related deaths are, are now blamed on 92% of them. 92% have underlying conditions. And of the underlying conditions, 90% of those 92%, 90% of 92% 
are food related. They're either diabetes, obesity, or some kind of heart disease that attracts itself to, to cardiovascular disease. It attracts itself to, to, to high cholesterol or hypertension or food related, all food related. And what that says is that we're a very sick country. Uh, and, and much of that sickness comes from our diet. Uh, and you know, we're, we're holding out hope for this vaccine. Um, and I am too, but a vaccine, you know, people tend to forget a vaccine isn't a cure-all. A vaccine is an immunity booster. That's what it is. But so is food. So is food. So that understanding the relationship between our own immunity, whatever we are faced with and, and, you know, nutrient dense food is, is becoming much more absolute. And, and I think in the takeaway to COVID, whenever it, whatever this is, it, whatever it is ends, I think that's going to be the story and, uh, or one of the stories, um, and the failure of our politicians to, to adequately deal with this threat, but, but, uh, or this reality. Um, I was just on a call with a scientist, uh, earlier today. He told me that in America, uh, yeah, I was talking to him about those underlying conditions, obesity, diabetes, and heart disease. He said, well, just diabetes alone, their team had been looking at that. And he said, if, if COVID had hit in 1975 in the United States, just based on the number of diabetic, type 2 diabetic adults in the U.S., just based on that, COVID would have been a bad flu season. Yeah, which says to you, diet type two diabetes, as we all know, is completely preventable. It's a hundred percent diet, and and so what that says is that you know, had our, had our diets been right, we would not be in the position we're in now, and that's um, that's illuminating and you know powerful because you you can take control as an individual. Uh, you know, to, to, to vote with your forks and, and, and be engaged in the world uh, through food advocacy, not just for your health, but for the health of the planet. The hospitality sector globally is renowned for really low profit margins, but a really creative, passionate industry. What, what impact has it had on the U.S. industry? How do, how do you see that coming out of pan, out of the pandemic? Well, it's a tale of two two worlds here. I mean, the, the industry, I'm assuming you're meaning the large-scale food industry, and the large-scale food industry has done brilliantly well in the last couple of months. Uh, you know, the, the, there's two stories coming out of the United States. One story is local, independent, small farms are doing very well on a gross basis, meaning people are spending a lot of money at these farms because, yeah, because because they recognize that their health is really important, and and a lot of people don't want to even want and for that reason. A lot of people don't even want to go into a supermarket. So there's a couple of reasons happening there, but simultaneously and somewhat confusingly, uh, the processed food industry is also. Um, as one executive said to me a few months ago, it's morning in America again. <laughs> and what he described was a moment pre-March 2020 where big food and, and big agribusiness and processed food was really on the way out. In America, the 
the millennial and Generation Z, these young people just turning their backs completely on food with multi-ingredients, with processing, food without a story. I mean, they, they, nobody wanted that. They were turning their backs on it. But in a, po in a COVID world, for the sake of convenience and being at home, it's a very different story. So uh, the question, and I don't have the answer, is how, what happens when we start to circle out of this? What does it look like? Um, and, you know, I'm buoyed by the idea that the local food movement is, is, is in some ways thriving. Again, I, you know, the transaction costs of producing local food, in other words, packing boxes for the home and doing the kinds of things that local farmers never did. I don't know that it's profitable. And when I've talked to farmers, the end result might not be profitable at all, but the gross sales are very strong. But simultaneously, so are the gross sales, so are the sales of the processed food industry in a way that, as this executive told me, he hasn't seen in a generation. So how this shakes out, I don't know. I don't know. I wonder what's happening in Australia. Is it the same kind of dichotomy? There is. Um, there is a greater connection to um, boutique, bespoke, uh, small growers and producers uh, and a realisation that the connection with food is more important than we perhaps realised. Well, that mirrors the United States. You know, when my, I wrote a book called The Third Plate and I, I did a book tour in Australia and um, I, I, I was struck just by the Australian story. It's very similar to the American story in the sense of it being a relatively young country with, with, with a farming history that really is extractive and a food culture that's based on that kind of extractive agriculture policies, largely very wasteful, protein-centric, et cetera. Um, and the parallels between the U.S. and, the, and Australia, I, I found striking. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we both have a lot to learn from each other as we try and circle out of not just this pandemic, but a, but a relationship with food and food culture that's really abysmal. And, and you know, it, it is, is um, a ripe for um, actually some very exciting possibilities uh, that I think is being driven largely by, by the younger generation who's demanding food with a story and food without without denuding flavor or nutrition. You mentioned that uh, health and immunity and things like diabetes are uh, things that can be um, changed by your own influence and um, can, can affect um, not only the food industry but our own health. What, what's some of the simple things people can do to change that helps um, the smaller producers and helps with our own immunity? Well, I think buying from farmers markets and, and local producers is the number one, number one way to, to move the needle here. But so is cooking. I mean, the fact that you cook at home is a big step because it means you're, it means someone else not cooking for you. And generally that's a very good thing. Um, it's, it's tastier, it's healthier, it's less wasteful. It's less impactful on the environment. So there's a lot there that's very exciting. Um, and I do think there's a reality to it where it costs more 
Um, I'm not convinced that it costs a lot more. Um, you know, I, I, I generally love a good whole grain and some beans and, and, and I find that to be one of the great, you know, black beans and rice or black beans and, 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 and barley and like one of the great meals. Um, I, I don't, I don't know that we need a, uh, you know, much more than that. And it's very cheap. Um, and nutrient dense and delicious. Um, you know, we both, we both, we both, Australia and United States, both have this westernized conception of a plate of food, of a dinner, which is somehow owed to us, which is, you know, six or seven ounces of protein that centers a plate with a little bit of grain or a little bit of vegetables, smattering of this and that. But really, it's protein centric lunch and dinner seven days a week. Uh, and that, that not only is not delicious, uh, but the carrying capacity of land will not allow that into the future. Um, and, you know, America and Australia, to a certain extent, had these virgin soils, which did enable that to develop. Um, but that game is done uh, or, or, you know, about to be done. And we need a new paradigm for, for, for the architecture of a plate of food and the expectation for dinner. And one place to look, I think, is is at is at is at historical cuisines around the world. It's just different cultures and cuisines. Nobody, you can't point to one culture and cuisine that has lasted, meaning it's meaning it's, you know, it's withstood this very important test of time, where protein is is six or seven ounces twice a day, seven days a week. That just doesn't exist, and you know. We, we, we ought to recognize that and celebrate it because that's what all cultures and cuisines have done. Peasant Italian, peasant French, the thousand varieties of, you know, Chinese, Chinese varieties, uh, uh, of the Indian food, every, Japanese, you know, anywhere. Nobody does what we do. Um, and I would argue, since I just named some of the most delicious cuisines in the world, that you're not giving up anything. You're actually moving more towards a kind of hedonism and pleasure that could be very exciting. You've made a pretty big announcement this year in regards to your role with the restaurants. Can you tell us a bit about that and what led to that decision? Well, I'm stepping aside from the kitchen uh, where I'm sitting right now in 2021, and we're going to turn Blue Hill over to uh, a cohort of some very exciting unknown chefs Wow! with some radical yeah. Radical diversity compared to what I do, which is, you know, very Eurocentric. Um, and as I said, very simple. These are chefs that you've never heard of um, that are, are, are blazing a path uh, for a very distinct cuisine, a very distinct pattern of eating that celebrates a particular place. They're going to reinterpret it based on our farms uh, that are that I'm sitting on and my Blue Hill farm, my family farm, the dairy farm, and also the farms that surround us. So it's gonna it's gonna look very different, uh, but uh, the core of it is going to allow us to uh, experience uh, a good agriculture through the eyes of some very different chefs with very different experiences. Um, so one part of it is you know allowing chefs who fly under the radar to have more exposure because of the the incredible gift I was given by 
by having a kitchen at Blue Hill at Stone Barns, which is the old Rockefeller estate. And the pedestal that I was put on just by luck, so, you know, it was a casino in the sky and I hit jackpot. So allowing me to step aside for a moment and, and giving these chefs a voice, not just because I'm fascinated by, for example, Sri Lankan food. And I just today got off the phone with a gentleman who I'm hoping is going to do the residency who believes that Southwestern Nigerian cuisine is a very distinct food way that hasn't been unexplored. And that's where he's from. So he's talking about things that I didn't, issues I didn't even know were issues. I mean, it was just amazing. And so these are the kind of chefs that we want to selfishly learn from, but also take the opportunity to to share some of the of the limelight with and 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 um, uh, hopefully have them interpret uh, uh, the landscape in a different way than I do. Um, and as I said, if you look to some of these historical cuisines, you find a pattern of farming and agriculture that, in its rudimentary way, was really resilient. Uh, obviously organic, but very resilient and, and, and complementary. And um, so what does it take to create a menu that supports that kind of farming? That's the question. And that's where we're, that's always been the question for me. And now we're going to turn over to other chefs to answer that question through their interpretation. And so I'm really excited about it. This period of time has been challenging. And as you mentioned, there's still cases going up in uh, certain areas in the US. But is, is there some positives to come out of this uh, traumatic experience? Well, yeah, I always try and look for the positives or the learnings. And it's hard to do that in a moment where, you know, today we saw a spike of 44% um, infection rate in the United States. But if I could remove myself from that depressing statistic and say that, you know, the, I, I, I hope the learnings are that cheap food ends up being very expensive. And we have an agriculture system that promotes cheap food. Uh, and in America, our tax dollars go to support it. And when you get into a situation like COVID where immunity, natural immunity is key, you start to see the real cost of that cheap food. And I hope that we have a different kind of national food policy um, that we, we enact one uh, in this country and hopefully it, it rubs off on Australia or vice versa. We need a, we need a, we need a food policy that, that, that first and foremost encourages the right kind of farming. Because if you encourage the right kind of farming, you encourage the right kind of eating, period. That's what, that's what all those historical cuisines are all about and why, why my residency program that I'm setting up to me is so exciting because you're introducing chefs that are broadcasting a kind of agriculture and, and culture, right? Culture is at the, in, in, the, in the part of agriculture is that, that it's a culture that supports the agriculture. It's a, it's, a agri it's a culture that supports the farming, the right kind of farming. And the right kind of farming is always ends up being delicious, always, and more nutrient dense. The correspondence between truly um, ethical farming, organic, regenerative, and um, thoughtful, always leads to the best food. And that is a correspondence that's really, really uh, celebratory. Um, 
And if we can, out of COVID, recognize the correspondence between eating and health, but also pleasure, I think we have a, have a shot at a new paradigm for the future. Um, and I don't say that in a grandiose way. Um, I just think, you know, I don't know if this is true of Australia, but one of the things that I have always admired about the American food culture, which is a funny thing to say because it's hard to say anything admiring about the American food culture. But if you could say something admiring about the American food culture, it, was, it would be that it adopts new ideas, new trends, new ideas with dizzying speed. I mean, that, you know, Australia, I think, too, uh, to a certain extent. I can tell you, and I'm sure you know as well, or if not better than I do, that that does not happen in India. That does not happen in Japan. That does not happen in China, for the most part. You know, food, food trends take a long time to develop. In America, we volley back and forth between every new idea. So I... I I think there's a moment to 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 take capitalize here, and, and and I do think that this generation can force some really dramatic changes that are long overdue. As we move forward and get beyond COVID, what what are you most looking forward to? You know, I'm I'm personally I'm struck by leaving the kitchen for a minute because I'm I've been cooking for 30 years and I have two young kids. And so COVID has allowed me to be a part of my daughter's lives in the evening that I never had been allowed to be a part of. That's been very interesting and incredible. Um, so while I miss the restaurant, I, I, don't, um, I don't miss those evenings when I was, you know, missing them. Um, so that's, that's a very, very, for me personally, very... Uh, exciting development. You've got a pretty, uh, as you said, you're on the precipice, pretty incredibly important election in the next few days. What's your hope for the for the outcome of that? Well, I mean, I'd like to say my hope is that uh, that the, that there's a new administration that places, you know, a lot of emphasis on 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 fixing some problems with agriculture that are deep-seated and have gotten worse under the Trump administration. But I, I, you know, at this point, we just need a new administration. We need a new face for America. Uh, and I hope that in this time of crisis, we have the kind of leadership that can um, do bold changes. That's what I hope for. Because uh, we need it. We need it for our health and for the health of the planet, um, which has which, as we all know, is in is is in peril like never before. Well, we're truly honoured to have you share your story in the middle of your first service for so long. It's pretty extraordinary that you would give us your time. Oh, well, thank um, you. I'm, I'm happy to step away from from cooking uh, this new kind of meal that I'm doing with very limited service and uh, and and um, you know only seven cooks in the kitchen. But uh, but it's a pleasure to talk to you. And I I just want to say that. I follow the work that you do, and it's 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 very important and and um, inspiring. Uh, I also feel so inspired by the Australian people. I mean, I, I I my book tour there, I it was going almost eight years ago now, but I I found it to be one of the most moving experiences of my life in talking to people about food and farmers. The farmers that I met that came out 
uh, to meet me based on the book. I just, it was extraordinary. And I do think there's, you know, I don't know how analogous the situation today is to what's happening in Australia, but my sense is that that kind of consciousness that I'm hoping will come out of America will come out of the people of Australia. I think food is a, is a, is increasingly a big part of the younger generation's um, interests also in Australia. And that we'll see a sea change uh, in these next couple of years. And I imagine that the great chefs of Australia and the, the interested in, um, and the, the, the aerobic eaters of Australia, uh, attentive and anaerobic eaters of Australia will, will begin a conversation that will lead to some serious change because we need it now, as I said, more than ever. Well, Dan, we are honored to have you on Deep in the Weeds. Um, please keep in touch and um, good luck with the, the year ahead. And um, we'll talk again soon. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to that. Well, let's catch up and compare notes in a couple of months. It would be very interesting. We would love to. Thanks again, Dan. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospo community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well. <laughs>